There is a true story of a pastor in California. This was late in the year 2000, who one Sunday morning in church asked for a hundred volunteers, and he called them all to the front of the sanctuary, and he handed them all crisp new $100 bills. And as they and the congregation stood there in a state of you know, confusion, he laid down some guidelines. First, he said, this is not your money. It's God's. It's God's money. Secondly, he said, use it. Don't just spend it. Invest it in the kingdom. Advance the cause of Christ with it. And third, he said, and in 90 days, I want you to come back in and let the whole congregation know what you did with it. And one woman in the church used the story to spur some of her friends to contribute, and they raised $1,700 to help a lady that they knew who was losing her apartment. Help her pay the rent and buy some groceries. So this is a small scale, but very vivid application of the parable of the talents, which we are looking at this morning from Matthew chapter 25. I'm not going to repeat the experiment, of course, but uh, we are going to go back to the parables. The parable just prior to this text, which we were looking at before Advent, was about staying alert and watchful, about being prepared, having a lamp full of oil. This text answers the question, well, what does it mean to be alert? What does it mean to have oil in your lamp, to be ready for the bridegroom? And so we'll make three points. They're already filled out on the insert. Investments, the reckoning, and the application. So first, we want to look at the investments So in verse 14, the kingdom, it's Jesus is talking about the kingdom when he says it. He means the kingdom is said to be like a man going on a journey. He calls his servants, he entrusts his wealth to them, his property to them. Right? There are three servants, one gets five talents, one gets two, one gets one. And a talent was a monetary unit. It's a lot of money. It was equivalent to about 20 years pay for a day laborer. So a, a single talent, one talent, the smallest unit given in the parable, would be about somewhere between two and $400,000 in today's money. So it's important to see that enormous sums of money are being invested here. These are not $100 bills. Collectively, over $2 million in current money is in play in the parable. And the point is that the king, the master, has poured out his substance, his treasury, his riches on his servants. And he's not leaving his wealth for safekeeping. He expects profit, which means he expects investment and improvement and advancement. In Luke's version of this parable, the master says, do business until I return. 
Now, clearly the talents here are meant to stand for more than just our economic assets. None of us really have, or many of us, or few of us, really have this sort of wealth. The talents here are, they operate on a couple levels. On one way, they're everything we have. Our time, our personal gifts, and our economic assets. But more fundamentally, the talents refer to the gift of the kingdom. The talents refer to the gift of the kingdom. They are about the bestowal of the master's wealth. They are about the glorious riches of the triune God being given to us in Jesus Christ. You have inherited a kingdom. You've been given a kingdom. That's why you are a kingly people. This is what the incarnation of the eternal Word of God means. The kingdom, the civilization, the order of God has come upon you. And this is wide-reaching. The ramifications are immense. It means we have to think through all that we have. Our time and our gifts and our treasure in light of in subservience to that kingdom. But notice, the gift gift of the kingdom here does not mean that everyone has the same capacities for service. Notice the end of verse 15. The man distributed the talents to each according to his ability. (coughs) The talents are distributed to each according to their ability. So, the text is saying God knows his children. He knows how he made them. He knows their aptitudes and their potential. And he entrusts them with just the right amount. And so the issue in life is not about how much you have. It's certainly not about how much you inherit or how much you start with. It's how faithful you are with the king's treasure. How faithful you are with the gift of the kingdom. And then at the end of verse 15, the king goes away. This means that the fundamental, irreplaceable gift that we have is time. This is often, I think, lost sight of. Ask anybody what their spiritual gifts are. Almost no one will say time. The fundamental gift we have is time. It's an hourglass glued to the table. You can't reverse it. You can't unstick it. And you can't get it back. Anyone who's ever done any investing knows the crucial role of time. Once it's lost, it's impossible to recover it. The world exists in the mercy of God between the ascension and the second coming for what's outlined in this text. In this time when the master's gone away, the world exists. And so it's very important not to treat time as a given. 
as if we're all going to live to be 475,000 years old. And most people do go through life this way. When I was a fresh uh, college graduate, I was maybe 22 years old, and I started at IBM and I shared an office with a man who at that time was in his late 50s. He, he was a very funny man, one of the funniest people I had ever met. Uh, had a wonderful sense of humor. It turns out he lived in the house I grew up in. Like I went away to college and I decided to come back and work for IBM and there's my office mate in his 50s and he bought the house that we lived in when I was a little child. He'd always come in in the morning and say, you know that, that bathroom doorknob down in the downstairs bathroom is broken? I said, I don't know, Bob, is it broken? Yes, it's broken. And I asked the neighbors, they said, Kevin did that when he was a little kid. This is a guy who, when the pictures of the people who got promoted were posted in the hallway, this was at a time when, if you got promoted at IBM, they would put a little piece of paper up on, on the bulletin board in the hallway with the photos, little photos of everyone who got promoted, and underneath would have their name, and it would say what level they got promoted to. Well, he would go out into the hallway with his photo ID badge and hold his badge up underneath the pictures of the promoted people, comparing their face with his. He did it, he said, because I wanted to make sure that I didn't get promoted and my manager forgot to tell me. <laughs> and so he did the same thing, he said, with the obituaries in the morning paper. And here I'm getting back to the point. Did the same thing with the obituaries. He said, he said, if I'm in there, it's bad news. If I'm not in there, I have to come in and work with you and it's still bad news. <laughs> so, but he was wrong. Now see, the point I want to make is, he was wrong about that. If you're not in the obituaries, if you check and you're not in there, that means the hourglass still has got some sand in it. It hasn't run out. It means you're living in the time of the church and in the hour of grace. It means you're in the time of this parable. You know the rest of the parable well, right? In verse 16, the one with five talents went at once. Notice that in the text shows his eagerness. He went at once. He put the money to work. He invests and he makes five more talents. And in verse 17, the one with the two talents does the same thing. They both achieve a remarkable 100% return on the king's generosity. And the one who has the one talent digs the hole, hides the money. May have thought this was a very prudent thing to do. Safety. There was a saying of the rabbis, a false saying of the rabbis at the time, which said the safest thing to do with money is to bury it. This man may have been thought, hey, I'm just following the rabbis. So that's the investments. The second point is the, is the reckoning. So in verse 19, after a long time, Notice the time reference again, the time of the church, the time for kingdom business. The master calls his servants to settle accounts. So the one who received the five talents comes forward. He brings his additional five. He says, master, you entrusted me with five talents. Like notice the accent on the original gift. You entrusted me with this extraordinary original sum. 
and he can barely contain his excitement. He says, see, in some translations it's look, look, I've gained five more. And the one who received two talents in verse 22 uses the same language about the original gift. The gift was yours. You gave it to me and look at my joyous excitement and what I've done with the gift. And they both received the same well-known commendation in verse 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. These are the only words that matter at the end of your life. Right? Just like the fundamental question with the time you've been given is, how are you using it for the kingdom? The only words that are going to matter at the end are hearing these words. We're living for nothing else than to hear the Lord Jesus utter these magnificent words to His people. Well done, good and faithful servant. Good speaks to the quality of the servant and faithful to the quality of his service. And you can't have one without the other. And so these are servants who are reflecting Christ. They are images of God restored in Christ. The Master says, you've been faithful over a few things or over a little in some translations. It's interesting, right? We spoke about the enormous sums of money given, the the gift of the kingdom they've received. And yet, here, when the Master says, look, you've been faithful with a little bit, with a few things, we see that we've only received the beginning of the kingdom. Yes, we've received a magnificent gift, but it's only the beginning. It's the already, but not the not yet. Right? We've received the gift of the Spirit from the risen and exalted Christ, but what does Paul say about that gift? He says it's a down payment. It's an earnest of an inheritance which is still future. So compared to the glory that is to be revealed, compared to the kingdom in its fullness, we have received a little. It has not even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him. The magnificence of the grace of God which has appeared in Jesus Christ is just the beginning. We have just a little bit now. But these two servants have been faithful in the little bit. And the Master says, look, I'm going to set you over many, many things. It's important to see this. This future dominion for the faithful. We do not believe in simply going to heaven. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life, the full-orbed social life of the world to come. We believe in a new heavens and a new earth. And we believe that faithfulness here means responsibility there. I will put you in charge. You were faithful in few things. I will put you in charge of many things. 
And this also surely means faithfulness now will entail more responsibility now. Isn't that one of the great ironies of life? The more things you do well, the more work you're going to get to do. Now and later. That means there's no way to avoid this sense of God calling you out into the deep, into greater faithfulness, greater responsibility, greater exertion, greater service. There's no retirement from the life of discipleship. Calvin says here, he says, let each of us remember that he has been created by God for the purpose of laboring and of being vigorously employed in his work. And that not only for a limited time, but till death itself. Sure, you may retire from your profession, but no one retires from responsibility for the talents that have been given to them. And for the investing of those across all the time, which is also a gift. Notice how the master, he, he concludes his commendation with an invitation. It's not, it's not put particularly um, in a particularly fitting way, I think, in the NIV. But this is nothing less than an invitation to the eternal wedding supper of the Lamb. Enter into, it's, the NIV has it, share your master's happiness. Other translations, enter into the joy of your master. This is nothing less than a summons to enter the joy of the triune God in the coming glorious kingdom. And both the faithful servants receive this same commendation. But it doesn't mean they receive exactly the same reward. It's highly unlikely here that I will put you in charge of many things means the same thing to the first servant as it does to the second servant. The point is to whom much is given, much is required. To whom a little less is given, perhaps a little less is required. But in both cases, faithfulness is called for. Faithfulness is called for and it's commended. You start with what you have. So notice something else that this parable raises for us. The third servant, who we see in a minute, is going to be excluded from the kingdom. I mean, he's not just going to be disciplined. He's going to be excluded from the kingdom of God for his lack of faithfulness. Right? He doesn't just get a good tongue lashing. So the question arises, as often does, um, does the parable teach a subtle form of salvation by works? We've looked at this in a number of these parables. But here I, I do want to remind you, remember the original Psalms. They're pure gift. They're pure gift. But it is crucial to look in the text and see that there, there are rewards here and these rewards, while they correspond in some way to a life of faithfulness, they far exceed our performance. Think of it this way. Entering into the everlasting joy of the Holy Trinity is not some sort of strict merit for being faithful to God in this life. Faithfulness is required Faithfulness is rewarded, but the reward is still gracious. 
It's of a whole different order. Whole different order. I use the example, I think I've probably used it here to try and illustrate this, and I'll do it, I'll do it again. Um, if you have a young child and they come to you with a finger painting, and it's their, it's their best effort and they present it to you, you don't say, well, dear, this is rather juvenile and childish work. Right? You don't pull out a Rembrandt or a Picasso and, and chastise her or him for their lack of skill. You praise the work. You say it's wonderful because she was faithful according to her capacities. Right? You judge the painting of your child in light of the fact that this is your beloved child and they're using their gifts relatively faithfully. That's how God the Father judges our works. He doesn't take the painting of your life and say, that's not a Rembrandt. What are you, Jackson Pollock? The stuff splattered all over the place. So, the summary of this should be something like this. The reward corresponds to, yet it far exceeds our faithfulness. And so this brings us to the third servant in verse 24. He comes forward, and rather than praising the original generosity, he gives a speech, and it's really a slanderous speech. He says, Master, I knew you were a hard man. And the word for hard here is the word we get the word sclerosis from. It means unyielding. Uh, Harsh, overly demanding, unmerciful. It's a vicious slander against the character of God, who the master stands in for. I mean, you would think the treatment of the first two servants would have dissuaded him of this falsehood. But he says, you harvest where you haven't sown. You gather where you scattered no seed. Understand what he's saying. He's saying to God, you expect profit without investing. You expect me to give you something, but you've not given me anything to work with. This is charging God with being miserly. It's to liken God to Pharaoh, who demands the same output of bricks, even though the Israelites had to go gather the straw on their own. You want the same number of bricks, but you're not providing me the straw. You're making me go get the straw. God, he is saying, is a capricious taskmaster. So this little speech by the third servant is not a modest error. It's a massive misunderstanding of the graciousness of God. And this kind of a view of God, which some are afflicted with, it leads to fear. You see that in verse 25. I was afraid. This is not godly fear. This is an ungodly fear because your conception of God is that he's harsh, that he's mean, that he's a taskmaster, that he's not gracious all the way down. We need to be liberated from this, and this parable exists in part to do that. This, this sort of fear inhibits risk-taking. And life is risk. It's a risk. Choices by their nature cut off all other choices. 
So if you want to keep all your options open, if you want safety at all costs, you're not ready for the kingdom of God, this parable is saying. If your role is, I'm just going to protect and defend, protect and defend, minimize risk, minimize risk, minimize risk, you're not ready for the kingdom. And that reflects something of a, of a distorted view of God. Nothing is built, even the kingdom of God or outside of it, without massive, dedicated investment. And investment means risk. So if we want Westminster to continue to flourish and expand into the future, if you want to plant churches and impact the Hudson Valley and continue to impact beyond that, that requires massive investment and investment requires risk. And so the kind of view we have of our Heavenly Father is crucial with doing the right kinds of things with His gifts. God is not sitting in heaven waiting for you to make a little mistake, like, like failing to dot an I or cross a T somewhere. Some sort of a procedural error or a mistake of any kind so that he can chastise you. He expects us to stumble and falter. He knows our frame. He is our Father. And his perfect love casts out this kind of fear. This is precisely the kind of fear that the love of God excises from our lives. So, if, if our view of God is distorted, it will lead to a paralyzing kind of fear. And you know what it does? It leads to treating the gifts of God as if they are family heirlooms. And they have to be guarded rather than gifts to be poured out. And so this servant is like this. His conception of God is that God is hard. Right? Maybe he had an earthly father who was hard. Who knows? Maybe he had relatives or bosses. But we do have a tendency to do this. Part of what needs to happen here is an inversion. Right? God is not measured by human fatherhood being projected up onto God. Human fatherhood is measured from the top down as a reflection, shattered although it may be, of God's magnificent fatherhood. Right? This is what Paul means in Ephesians when he says, he is the father from whom every fatherhood or family in heaven and on earth is named. All fatherhood starts, begins, and is rooted in the fatherhood of God rather than being projected onto God from the shattered images of human fathers. So this third servant sees God wrong. And he, he says he might even be expecting commendation. He says, look, he says, see, here is what belongs to you. Like trembling, like I kept it safe. It's nothing's broken. And in verse 26, the master says, you wicked, lazy servant. It's interesting. He doesn't say, well, all right, you're not, you're not much of an investor. You know, at least, you, at least you kept it safe. He says you're wicked and you're lazy. So, so the evil is not just that he has a slanderous view of God. Now notice, this slanderous view of God could sound like piety if you sat down with this third guy. 
right? He would be afraid of God. He'd be very careful. He'd be very cautious. He'd, he'd not want to lose anything. It's not like he's a, not a conscientious person. But it's slanderous. And that's not the only evil. The, the evil is his laziness, the text says. Laziness is a sin. Sloth really is one of the seven deadly sins. Because across, across the, the span of a life, it means lots of wasted years. It leads to fruitlessness. It's a form of squandering the gift of the kingdom. So God repeats a portion of the servant's slanderous speech. He's not agreeing, of course, that he, he reaps where he doesn't sow. Notice it's in the form of a question. It's really a piece of biting sarcasm. He says, so? You knew that I reaped where I didn't sow and gathered where I scattered no seed? The tone of this is, oh, oh, did you? You knew that. So that's your view of me. If you thought I had such an unscrupulous desire to profit, if I was really like you envisioned me, he says, the least you could have done is put my money on deposit with the bankers and then I would have received it back with interest. You know, there's an interesting point here, right? Like, why didn't he do that? Part of, part, of, part of it is this. When you have a fearful, distorted notion of God, you act irrationally. You think you're acting rationally. You think you're responding to your view of God, but you're actually acting irrationally. This is why theology proper, meaning knowing who God is, is so important. Because what we do really does reflect our doctrine of who God is. And it's, it's fleshing itself out in this servant's life. In other words, God is saying here, I could have had my prophet, and you still could have catered to your distorted fears. But you didn't even do that. You're wicked in your view of me, and you're lazy in your handling of the time and the gifts I've given you. So it doesn't matter if you have five or two or one talent. It's not an issue. The issue is a correct vision of God's generosity. And then faithfulness with the original sum. It's hard to be faithful if you think God is standing over you with a ruler ready to slap your hand. But if you have the right vision of God, you do what you can. The great uh, 18th century uh, political philosopher Edmund Burke said, nobody makes a greater mistake than he who does nothing because he could only do a little. That brings me to the third point, the application. So the talent's taken from him. It's given to the one with ten talents. And then the principle's enunciated in verse 29. Everyone who has, here has means has been faithful with what they've been given. Everyone who has will be given more and he'll have an abundance. But from the one who has not been faithful, even what he has will be taken away. And of course, the servant is end up being cast into the outer darkness. Notice the judgment according to faithfulness or according to works is a reality. Right? It means that barrenness leads to destruction. So here we sit. 
If you're sitting here today, even if you didn't check, it means your name's not in the morning obituaries. It means you're here during history's long delay. You're, during the t- you're here during the time when the master's gone away. And so we need to ask what our kingdom investment portfolio looks like. What would, and what would it look like if the master returned tonight? There was a TV commercial a number of years back, tongue-in-cheek, giving life advice, where the, where the man on the commercial said, it's never too early to start padding your obituary. It's never too early to start padding your obituary. I, I saw that. I said, now that's good kingdom advice. The master may delay a long time, but all of us are going to meet him very soon. So do business. Be busy. Use whatever you've been giving. Start padding your obituary. Because your father loves you. He's not, gonna, he's not a mean, harsh, cruel man. It's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And he yearns to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Amen.